these endotype A kids, they have a risk for a more complicated course, meaning they still have multiple organ dysfunction, a week out, and they have a higher risk of mortality. Particularly if these kids are administered corticosteroids, they have a four-fold increased risk of mortality. Welcome back to Pete's Grit. I'm Zach Hodges, a pediatric ICU fellow from UT Southwestern in Dallas. And I'm Alice Shanklin, a critical care fellow in Washington, D.C. Alice, will you remind our listeners what we do here at Pete's Grit? Absolutely. Pete's Grit is an educational podcast. We're looking for the best teaching spiels around the country and the world about pediatric ICU medicine. And we have a very special guest today. Who's that? Yes. Today, we are talking to the Dr. Zimmerman. In part one, He gives us his best fellowship and career advice, and he discloses when he would consider giving steroids in septic shock. Dak, tell us more about who Dr. Zimmerman is. Dr. Jerry Zimmerman is a professor of pediatrics at the University of Washington and the former chief of the Division of Critical Care Medicine and the director of the Pediatric Intensive Care Unit at Seattle Children's Hospital. He is the past president of the Society of Critical Care Medicine. Dr. Zimmerman is the co-editor of the textbook, Pediatric Critical Care, and is an accomplished researcher. He was a founding member of POLICI, the Pediatric Acute Lung Injury and Sepsis Investigator Network, and he's the co-principal investigator for the Stress Hydrocortisone and Pediatric Septic Shock Trial, the SHIP study, that we will discuss later in this episode. Yes, he is a captain of the ships. Let's get right to the interview. Welcome back to the Pete Script Podcast. We are so excited to have Dr. Jerry Zimmerman with us today to talk about this very important topic. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Zimmerman. To get things started, will you tell us something about yourself and be sure to include something you enjoy outside of medicine? Sure. First of all, thanks for the invitation to talk with you today. This is uh, quite an honor. Well, outside of medicine, which uh, I have to say I I do enjoy being an intensivist, and if I had to do it all over again, I wouldn't change anything. But Outside of the hospital, I have been a cook all my life, basically uh, worked in the kitchen of one restaurant or another all through college and graduate school as well. And I do all the cooking in our house, and I'm sort of like Julia. A nice glass of wine in the middle of uh, this work makes it uh, nice. I'm not one of these Iron Chef guys under pressure. I had enough of that in the restaurant, but I find it very relaxing. Oh, well, that's lovely. In addition, I have a new uh, Irish setter. He's uh, two years old, uh, just last week. And if he doesn't uh, run uh, very regularly, he gets crazy. So uh, I do enjoy that, and it keeps my blood going, I guess. And uh, it's uh, good for him as well. So Seattle is a great place to be, as you know, for the outdoors. I'm from Wisconsin originally, but and I love Wisconsin, the rolling hills, the black and white cows everywhere. But Seattle does have an ocean, and it does have lots of mountains on three sides, so it's always a great place to be. Oh, well, I believe it. Dr. Zimmerman, as a proud graduate of the Children's National Hospital Critical Care <laughs> Fellowship Program, will you share with us a key mentor or a key decision that you made early in your career that was impactful for your development as an intensivist or as a physician scientist? Yes, interesting place to start. 
Well, when I was a fellow at Children's National, the uh, attending faculty, in addition to some anesthesiology faculty, were Peter Holbrook, Murray Pollock, and Alan Fields. Just to show you how times have changed, when I interviewed for my fellowship, I stayed at Peter's house. I didn't stay in a motel. Oh my gosh. Uh, and, and that was sort of the way things were done then. I would say all three of these guys were very impactful, and I really appreciated their input into my uh, life. I think just off the top here, uh, one of the things that Peter Holbrook did for me is really encourage myself and, and all the fellows to get involved in national stuff so that you could rub shoulders with other people. He really encouraged all of us to uh, get involved in the Society of Critical Care Medicine, and I did. My membership number is 370. So, you know, I got to uh, be around, have a beer uh, with William Shoemaker, Max Harry Weil, really the fathers of critical care medicine. And so I really have appreciated that. I've stayed involved with SCCM, uh, as you may or may not know, and I think it's made a huge difference in my life. Some of the uh, most memorable experiences in my life are because Peter encouraged us to get involved in the Society of Critical Care Medicine. Oh, absolutely. Impactful for your career, but also impactful for pediatric ICU medicine as a field. Uh, absolutely, yes. And I would say that there's about 16,000 members in the Society of Critical Care Medicine right now, and the pediatric group comprises about 10% of the total, and they're quite active and a fun group. Dr. Zimmerman, as a trainee, when I think about your career, what you've done for the critical care medicine, it seems that you've been very successful as a clinician at the bedside, as an educator, and of course in research. When you reflect on your own career, what are you most favorite? What are you most proud of? Well, personally, I guess what I'm most proud of is the fact that one of the things in my background, I'm a biochemist, not a physiologist. So there's lots of physiology and it plays out in our practice every day. That's why it's such an amazing job. But uh, underlying that physiology is biochemistry. That's where I came from. So the things that I'm really interested in are things like endocrinology and metabolism, and, you know, they sort of frequently get short shrifted compared to the brain or the heart or the lung. So I guess I'm usually talking about something biochemical on rounds and not compliance of the lung, for example. If uh, Brad Furman were here, he would say, Jerry, our greatest contributions are going to be our book, is the book. Pediatric Critical Care is in its sixth edition now. And it's probably about time to start thinking about what this is going to look like for the seventh edition. But I think that has hopefully been a valuable resource for lots of people around the world. Not to say that Roger's textbook isn't equally just an outstanding contribution to our field. But what the textbook has done for me is introduced me to all kinds of people that I really didn't know very well. And I read a lot of chapters, did a lot of editing. So it was good for me to study for my boards as through the years. So I have enjoyed that a lot too. Oh, yes. We're definitely, <laughs> definitely familiar with your work. Very good. And listeners, we're holding up our copy of Farmer and Zimmerman to show off, of course, for the show today. All right. Can you think of a favorite failure or an instance where a situation didn't go according to plan that was sort of impactful on your career? 
Yes, I think I've talked about this several times. My first job after I left Washington, D.C. was in Syracuse, New York. And at that time, Frank Oski, you may not know who Frank Oski is, but he is a giant, a giant in pediatric medicine. And he was the department chair. They had just built a brand new ICU there. And anyway, this was my first job. I had one partner, Bob Cantor. And so, you know, we were either on service or backup all the time. Oh, my gosh. And when he went for his usual late summer, fall hike in the Adirondacks, he just went in and was gone, never knowing whether he's really going to come back or not or get eaten by a bear or something. You know, you're on your own. So on one of those occasions, uh, as a young faculty, uh, a girl with just terrible septic shock came in poor peripheral perfusion. Her hands and feet were turning purple, tips of her toes probably black. And just, she was so clamped down that we couldn't measure blood pressure. And we had put in a central line, but she was leaky everywhere, you know, total body edema, anasarca, you know, in the first day. And we had no way to measure blood pressure. At this time, there were no aero catheter kits. There were no cook catheter kits. There were some central line kits that we did have, but they didn't work very well for kids. And so we did a lot of cut downs. And actually, Bob and I wrote a paper about saphenous venous cut down for vascular access. But anyway, to get back to your question, I uh, was doing a cut down on the femoral artery to put a catheter in this kid so we could measure the blood pressure. And why would you go there of all places? Well, she was so clamped down that I was afraid I wouldn't be able to recognize anything else. So I got the vessel and there it was and you could see it pulsating and it was right where it was supposed to be. And I got my curved Kelly forceps around it and got a tie and pulled it underneath the vessel and got one distally and one proximally and had it pulled up ready to insert the catheter and it broke. The femoral artery in this kid is now severed. And the two ends don't just do this. They back into the tissue. So basically all the blood drained out of my head and lungs and heart into my feet. I was scared. I didn't know what to do. And there was a pediatric resident there at the time, Joe Tobin. And he just kept going. I was feeling sorry for myself oh, what are we going to do? This kid's not going to survive now. And he just kind of took the reins and just kept pushing on. This kid, you know, was really sick. And fortunately, a cardiovascular surgeon, a woman came in and found the ends of those vessels and got them back together and didn't even yell at me. And the leg was fine. There is collateral circulation around the femoral. That's one of the reasons that you can put an arterial line there. But I was very happy that she was able to repair that vessel. The leg was reperfused, and this child, this young girl, survived her terrible sepsis. And in large part, it was because this pediatric resident just kept encouraging me and the whole team, you know, don't quit. You know, we can do this. And And it was important that he was there and uh, kept the team going forward. That's amazing. It's a reminder that pediatric intensive care is a team sport, and you never quite know who's going to be that individual that makes the biggest impact that day. In this case, it was a resident of all people. 
Yes, and I can say that, and I'm not trying to be uh, lollygaggy, but, you know, what's fun about being in academic medicine, you know, I try to teach a pearl on every patient during rounds when I can, but there's not a day that goes by that I don't learn something from the residents as well. You know, every new group that comes into medicine has been better educated than anybody before them, and new stuff as well. So, you know, it's an exchange of information both ways, and it's just fun. That's great. When Alice and I started this podcast, we designed it as a podcast by fellows for PICU fellows. And I ask you, do you have any advice for maybe a PICU fellow listening to this conversation? Maybe they're in the latter half of their fellowship and they're considering pursuing a career in academic pediatric intensive care? Yes. I think everybody needs to be aware of the fact that after soldiers and policemen and firemen, the uh, next group of people that are most likely to burn out from their vocation are ICU nurses and doctors. And, you know, there's some huge percentage of people that are thinking about ditching it, their career that they've spent all this money, all this time on. There's a big percentage. It's like 30, 40% that are thinking about it all the time. And so it's important that people don't throw in the towel because they're smart. They invested in this. They did a lot of work to get to where they are. And so my my message is find out something else besides clinical care that's related to clinical care, but somewhere else where you can settle down, think about something else. And of course, all of us should stay engaged with our families. I think people do that much better now than I did. I would say I was pretty selfish with my family when I was a young faculty. But I think you need to do something else, like anesthesia, or administration, or formal teaching, or good quality improvement, or research of any kind. And for me, I had a research background before I went into medicine, and so it was pretty easy for me to do that. There's no better place in the world than an ICU to walk through and think of things that need research. So that's what's sort of done it for me. And the ideal research project for me is some type of an observation or an intervention that has biomarkers of one sort or another that relate to the disease process getting worse or getting better, and then interacting directly with the patient that you have a a very clinically meaningful endpoint, uh, not just the biomarker, but quality of life or functional status uh, or something that's important to the family uh, and patient uh, as well. So be aware that burnout sitting there on your back like a uh, wicked monkey and you need to pay attention to it. But I think there's some things that you can do proactively to protect yourself uh, and make your job more interesting as well. I think another thing that critical care people could do, I think there's only a few pediatric hospitals right now that have post-intensive care clinics. And I think that would be beneficial not only for patients, but for all members of the staff in the ICU to be assigned to work there on a regular basis to see, oh, 
I never saw you look this good. <laughs> I didn't know that you could do all of these things and, and just see these kids in a different environment, their parents in a different environment. I think it would go a long ways to mitigating risk of burnout. That's really insightful. And something I hadn't thought of as critically before is actually having intensivist staff these ICU follow-up clinics. And I can imagine how helpful that might be for our patients who have recurrent ICU stays, or especially those patients who have yeah. long stays in the ICU, to see them actually get better and have a functional right. status. Gosh, that, that could be really rewarding. Exactly. All right. Dr. Zimmerman, before we get started on the main topic, besides the textbook of pediatric critical care, do you have any conflicts of interest to disclose? I have research funding from Immune Express, a biotech company here in Seattle, and NIH. I get receive royalties for the textbook for editing it, and that's about it. I don't think anything will impact or bias my conversation with you today. That's very fair. Of course. Alice, give us our case and let's get going. All right. We've got a three-year-old boy with a history of short gut syndrome and an indwelling central line. He's here in the PICU with septic shock. He's gotten antibiotics, 40 per kilo of crystalloid, and you've titrated up on your epinephrine infusion due to ongoing hypotension. You asked for a vasopressin infusion to be brought to the bedside and are considering giving stress dose steroids. Dr. Zimmerman, what is the underlying physiologic rationale that supports the use of steroids for a patient in septic shock? Well, first of all, I, I would save that thought and just let me come back to this case I would like to know how much fluid has this child received? What's your assessment of vascular volume if you're not using CVP, which doesn't really give you the best information? How sure are you that the vasculature is full? And what about the ionized calcium? And before you start that vasopressin, this is a kid with short gut syndrome. If you're going to use that drug, don't use very much of it because if you're over about 40 milliunits per kilogram per hour, that child's going to be at significant risk for splanchnic vasoconstriction. So same with norepinephrine with inadequate volume resuscitation, same risk. And then I would say, you know, so what dose of epinephrine is he on? If you say he's on 0.1 already, I'd say, go home, don't even bother me. <laughs> How is that going to possibly hurt this child? Uh, I'm being melodramatic, but I think these questions are important. If you can develop a picture in your mind, starting with the bacteria or virus, for that matter, the detection system, the toll-like receptors, the signaling that goes on to send uh, nuclear transcription factors to the nucleus to generate this initial pro-inflammatory response and everything that that impacts, steroids work basically to modulate that inflammatory process every step along the way. I would say clinicians typically reach for this drug class when patients are hemodynamically unstable and they want an additional approach to try to make this child's blood pressure better. So one of the reasons that corticosteroids may be effective is they decrease capillary leak, keep that endothelial cell network on the basement membrane so it's less uh, leaky. They upregulate both alpha and beta receptors in the heart and on the peripheral vasculature. And there is even some notion that they may have some beneficial effect on cytopathic dysoxia, what's going on in the mitochondria. So there's 
There's rationale, things that make sense for use of corticosteroid in septic shock. That's helpful to hear the big picture effects that support why steroids might be helpful. With every intervention in the PICU, there's benefits, but there's also risks. Will you at least outline what are the common risks associated steroids and septic shock? Why might they not be helpful? The potential downside of corticosteroids are several. One is hyperglycemia. And, you know, there's 20 papers in the pediatric literature associating hyperglycemia and then hypoglycemia, trying to fix it with uh, adverse uh, outcomes. It was unfortunate that trying to control that glucose with insulin infusions to get it in range really has not been successful. But anyway, hyperglycemia is one. Another certainly would be risk of gastrointestinal bleeding. In fairness, that has never been a big issue as far as I know in kids. Another one is transition to delirium clearly associated with corticosteroids, although, in fairness, it's much more likely to occur with a big dose of dexamethasone than it is with stress dose hydrocortisone. Another big one is that we really have inadequately studied in kids is augmentation of catabolism. As part of the stress response, whenever you're ill, Things like epinephrine and endogenous corticosteroids turn on this family of genes called atrogenes, very well studied, and these genes mediate the production of proteases that circulate in your body and break down lean body muscle for a variety of reasons in this stress state. But if this is prolonged or exacerbated by exogenous steroids, It can leave you with a patient who's weak, maybe difficult to wean off the mechanical ventilator, maybe mobilization is more difficult. And then let's see, the big one and a major contribution of Dr. Hector Wong from Cincinnati is identification of these endotypes of children. And I would say same thing for adults. He studied both groups, and particularly this group of children with this gene expression. 100 genes that are most upregulated or downregulated in pediatric sepsis. This endotype A, it's an expression pattern you can see. And the expression pattern, you know, red is upregulated, blue is downregulated, green, yellow, or somewhere in between. These kids with endotype A, when you look at their gene expression profile, it's mostly blue. Everything is downregulated. And what are these genes that are downregulated? Well, They are the adaptive immune response, the glucocorticoid receptor, nitric oxide metabolism. These are already downregulated in sepsis, and if you administer corticosteroids, they are very significantly more downregulated. And these are like p-values of 10 to the minus 6th, if you care. So that's what's going on, but these endotype A kids, they're younger, their prism score. There's Murray, is higher, they have a longer ICU stay, they have a risk for a more complicated course, meaning they still have multiple organ dysfunction, a week out, and they have a higher risk of mortality, particularly if these kids are administered corticosteroids, they have a four-fold increased risk of mortality. So that's a big freaking deal. If nothing else, we need to get that sorted out. 
Because I agree, some people probably do benefit from steroids, but it's also clear that others are at increased risk for bad outcomes when we use this uh, medication. It's really helpful hearing the nuance of various patient subtypes. And there's seemingly, there's evidence that there's a certain subtype that may benefit from steroids, but there's also this subtype that may not benefit. That's uh, really correct. So, you know, right now, we're damned if we do and we're damned if we're not. Yeah, absolutely. What clinical studies should we know about that are just both supporting the use of steroids and septic shock and are very legitimately detracting from it? Well, of course, as usual, the best evidence uh, comes from adult medicine. In the old days, when I was young faculty, methylprednisolone was the drug. It was given at high doses, and there are multiple, multiple studies now demonstrating adverse effects attributable towards steroids and no improvement in outcomes. So that's out. So, you know, a couple decades ago, along comes stress dose hydrocortisone. It's the natural hormone. And the idea is, is the host's stress response adequate enough for this degree of stress, the host response in terms of generation of hydrocortisone? There's lots of ways to measure this, and there's lots of definitions that have been described to define this idea of critical illness-induced relative adrenal insufficiency. I think it's fair to say that we still really don't understand this as much as we think we do. I think the best evidence is from Dr. Anand and his French group. We can talk more about that later. The best studies, there's four of them, very high quality, large enrollment adult trials. The first one came from uh, French intensive care units. The second was called uh, Corticus, and it came from European intensive care units. And then the Australian, New Zealand people had a big trial called Adrenal. And then the last one was called Approach, and this also was conducted in Europe. And the end result, if you do a meta-analysis of those four trials and look at the forest plot and that little diamond down on the bottom, that's just kissing one. In the meta-analysis that I looked at this morning, the p-value was 0.02. The two trials that really push towards reduction of mortality in this meta-analysis are the trials by Anon interestingly, who included fludrocortisone in addition to hydrocortisone in his trials. And I think that's an important unanswered question in all of this uh, yet that might be very important because aldosterone has a number of roles that can be quite different. It's not just a mineralocorticoid. It has other things that may be important as well. So that's the adult evidence. There's been more recent analyses that have looked at corticosteroids and included some pediatric trials, which I think is really unfair because there was no signal in any of these pediatric trials, but they threw them in and then make the conclusion that corticosteroids are beneficial in reducing mortality overall when there's no signal. And these are all small trials that have been conducted in children. So that's really the adult data. I'd say it's pretty good. And I would also say, in truth, that in each of these trials, patients who received corticosteroids had faster resolution of organ dysfunction. 
But Simon Finfer from the ASNICS group would be quick to point out that don't use resolution of organ failure as a surrogate for mortality because they don't track one-on-one. So that's the adult stuff. For children, there have been, I think, like 10 observational studies, most of them retrospective, a few prospective. These are observational studies. They weren't designed to ask the question about corticosteroids specifically in kids with sepsis. And I would just point to a couple of them that I was involved in. One was interrogation of the Resolve database. This was the trial of activated protein C for kids before your time. Didn't work, but it was the biggest clinical trial in pediatric critical care at the time. So about half the group received corticosteroids and half of them didn't. And what was good about this trial is we had PRISM data for everybody. The groups were matched with illness uh, severity and there was no benefit in terms of outcomes. And then more recently, we reviewed retrospectively the Life After Pediatric Sepsis Evaluation Study Database. And similarly, in about 389 kids in this group, 40% of them received corticosteroids and 60% of them didn't. And people smarter than me, propensity matched the two groups And again, there was no difference in any clinically meaningful outcomes, quality of life, death, functional status. So again, this is good use of data that's generated, but it's not good evidence. It is association, but you cannot conclude causation necessarily. So that's why we are trying to generate good evidence in children like there is for adults at the present time. I really appreciate you overviewing all the key studies in adults and even pediatrics. If I were to summarize briefly, would it be fair to say that we've studied this a lot, but there's still a lot we don't understand, and it's unclear that steroids actually improve mortality or improve any clinically meaningful effects as our patients see, but maybe they restore shock or maybe improve like disease-specific markers as we measure them. Is that fair to say? Uh, I think that's a good summary, uh, yes. And I would say, you know, man, we get into this field because we're scientists, not witch doctors. Do you know who Claude Bernard is? No, I don't. Uh, He's the father of physiology, and basically all the stuff he did was related to critical care, too. And he made this point 150 years ago that the way we treat patients shouldn't be empiric. We should really try to generate evidence for what we do. Everybody agrees with that, but When there's an opportunity to actually participate in a trial, I don't care if it's hydrocortisone, but anything that we do, if there's a chance to participate in a trial and there can be a collaboration between the clinician educators and primary clinical people at the bedside and researchers, we should engage in that whenever we can. And our HEMOC colleagues are the gold standard role model Mm -hmm. for that. Absolutely. As you zoom out and think about practice, what proportion of pediatric intensivists routinely uses steroids in patients with septic shock? Is this a U.S. thing? Is it an international thing? I can't cite a study for the question that you just asked, but, you know, people are nervous. Intensivists are nervous, and they always want to do something, especially if they're young. And instead of watchful waiting, you know, do something uh, else. So there's like 20... uh, 
hospitals in the United States and another 10 in Canada that are participating in the SHIP study who sort of have equipoise, we're supposed to have equipoise, but you know, it depends on the situation. I think there are some people for which this is a religious question. Damn it, I'm going to give steroids. You're not going to tell me that this isn't the right thing to do, and I will do it. And that's that. You're never going to convince that person. So I think if you look, there are some people who get corticosteroids almost immediately. When you are starting your vasoactive inotropic support, there are physicians who really think that this patient needs corticosteroids as well. I think if people are honest, I would say the majority, that means over 50%. I don't know how much of a majority, but I think if the people are honest, scientifically honest, they would agree that we don't know the answer to this. There should be equipoise. But at the bedside, what you say in a survey and how you practice could be very different. Sure. For the rest of our conversation, we'll try to get towards the nuts and bolts, so to speak, of how this is delivered at the bedside. So previously in our conversation, you've mentioned methylprednisolone, you've even mentioned dexamethasone, and of course, hydrocortisone. Is it clear that hydrocortisone is the superior corticosteroid, or is there a role for these other two when treating kids with septic shock? I think all of the evidence that points towards potential benefit is with hydrocortisone. Ten years ago, one of the people at NIH, Dr. Nadelson, actually looked at dosing of hydrocortisone, and it seemed that if there was a beneficial effect, it was with equal to or less than 300 milligrams a day. So not high dose, stress dose, but not kablamo doses that were administered, for example, when methylprednisolone was utilized in the 70s and 80s. Dexamethasone just hasn't been studied as well as either methylprednisolone or hydrocortisone, but I would put it as a synthetic or semi-synthetic steroid, just like methylprednisolone, very high anti-inflammatory effects uh, without some of the beneficial effects that you see with hydrocortisone. Before you make me stick my foot in my mouth, dexamethasone work for COVID-19 pneumonia? Yes, it should be part of the care. You know, the studies are mostly observational, but it's pretty strong. There's some prospective RCTs with dexamethasone. So we followed suit in pediatrics, just like we always do. But I don't know if anybody's taking the time to keep track of when it works and when it doesn't and what the potential risks uh, or not are with this approach. And thank you for listening to this episode of Pete's Crit. Please remember that all content during this episode is intended for informational and educational purposes only. It should not be used as replacement for medical advice. The views expressed during this episode by hosts and our guests are their own and do not reflect the official position of their institutions. If you have any comments, suggestions, or feedback, you can email us at pedscritpodcast at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at critpeds and at pedscrit on Instagram for real-time show updates. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, rate, and review in your favorite podcasting application and share with your colleagues. Also, if you'd like to support the making of the podcast, please see the description for Venmo information and how to become a Patreon. Any donation will be appreciated. Thank you again for listening and goodbye.